Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. It's my job to find the geniuses, the top people in their fields, and interview them and you know, bring their knowledge to you, the listeners. I talk to over 2,000 clinicians, researchers, scientists, etc. So today I have Babak Govan. Uh, he's a PhD and he has a practice where he works with people that have insomnia. He also does uh, what he'll explain as moderative psychotherapy. And um, there'll be a couple of different modalities we'll talk about. So Babak, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, just to start off with, what, what, what's the name of your practice and how would you characterize it to someone first looking at it? Sure. So our practice is called Integrative Northwest. We shortened that to Integrative NW for uh, folks up in the Pacific Northwest or in Oregon. And uh, I'm in practice with my wife, who's also a clinical psychologist. And we treat a variety of different disorders from your standard mental health fare of depression and anxiety, not to reduce the, the caliber of those issues or the gravity of those issues, uh, couples counseling. But over time, we've specialized into health psychology, which is the interface of medical issues and psychological issues, and further uh, subspecialized in the treatment of insomnia. So patients with insomnia are a subset of who we see, but definitely do make a large make up a large portion. Well, um, maybe we can start just a little bit with people that have depression. You know, I know you weren't trying to make light of it, but I guess, unfortunately, it's super common. Any modalities you guys employ that are different or you find to be more effective than other places? Well, it is super common, and that could get us into a whole host of uh, topics, really. Um, I'll try to be as brief as I can without veering too far. But the very fact that it's very common is interesting. It brings up this idea of sociogeny, which... I really haven't heard anybody talk about, I was fortunate enough to have one professor way back when in grad school bring it up, and it's really about when an illness pertains to the society versus to the individual. And certainly with how things are going right now, uh, it's something to be looked at. What's going on sociogenically that's causing such a wide uh, number of people or large number of people to have depression uh, in, in that regard, when they come to counseling, we look at depression from a variety of angles. There are certainly therapists who follow a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, which might have more to do with cognitive monitoring, you know, uh, listening to your inner you know, self-talk, your inner monologue, and then disputing those thoughts if they tend to be or they likely are irrational and they tend to lean towards the negative. Uh, and that treatment would also encourage people to perform behavioral experiments um, wherein they, they begin to feel maybe motivated to do things. Uh, people with depression 
rightfully think that motivation precedes action. Um, I was fortunate enough, again, a lot of this just comes from clinical practice to have a patient many years ago tell me that action precedes motivation. And, and that's very true. Um, so behavioral experiments get them um, maybe out there. And then when they feel fulfilled, maybe that propels them further to work on their depression. But that's only so one. Uh, Go ahead. Just briefly, what's a quick, um, what's an experiment that seems to work for, you know, a decent amount of people to propose? Um, you know, again, getting back to sociogeny and what I was going to mention is that we work from a variety of angles. So CBT is one of them. But one thing that I think is working for people right now, though they struggle to implement it, when they do, they see the benefits, is to limit the amount of news that they're watching or listening to or otherwise being exposed to. I think uh, when I was younger, there was uh, CNN and maybe headline news was the more uh, you know, breaking news type of uh, outlet. And now it is really everywhere. And some of this becomes economical. Uh, but whenever you turn on at this point, uh, you go to you know, CNN.com or NPR news or whatever your flavor is, there'll be something breaking, something in red, and it'll constantly change. And then you, you know, start looking at things like Twitter and uh, other mediums that are much more instantaneous and people are bombarded with this. And they get, I think, a distorted sense of what's wrong with the world. Certainly, there isn't a lot going well. But I don't really know if it's been, if it's really a much worse time than other times. And that might just be a matter of degree. I mean, is it better to be living now and be able to have the luxury of doing this podcast, you know, through teleconference and, and get information out? Or is it, you know, better to be... Uh, living sometime in, you know, the early 1900s in New York, when maybe the sewer systems aren't, uh, you know, the way that they are now, and, and, and maybe 30% or 50% of children are dying before the age of six. So because of all the news people are hearing, they think that maybe right now there's a lot of war, or there's plague or this or that. But certainly in the past, we didn't have vaccines or anything like that. So our patients are stuck with all this, this bombardment of news and one of the behavioral experiments is try to schedule when you're going to watch the news or listen to the news, um, maybe once a day for 15 minutes or once a week, catch up on the headlines. But you're probably not going to miss anything in between. If something very big were to happen, I'm sure you'd hear about it from the neighbors. And to spend that time doing things that are much more productive, whether it's working at a, at a local charity to, to make impact locally and see that change, or to engage in exercise, or to build connections with family, or to engage in, a, in a, some activity that brings you kind of meaning, whether it's a creative pursuit or otherwise. So, you know, because I think the uh, take the sign free free beer tomorrow. You should say to um, patients to tell themselves every day, "I'll check the news tomorrow. Don't worry, I'll, I'll get to it." And then tomorrow will never come. Yeah, yeah, right, right, and. Um, so that's, that's just kind of an example um, to your other point of what we do with depression. You know, uh, some of that is also tied, I think, to the epidemic of loneliness nowadays. Um, and that's not to take a collectivist or individualist uh, kind of stance on anything. Rather, I think um, this gets into a whole host of things like accelerating change. You know, the environment is changing at such a rapid rate, at an exponential rate 
that, you know, by the time you've updated your phone, there's another update on the way, or by the time you've ordered a gadget, the new one's already being shipped to the supplier. And so what happens there is people do not have a lot of salience with what they're doing. You know, I'm a big, you know, music fan. And maybe even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I used to go to a concert, I felt like I was there with other fans. And more recently, when I've gone, I really feel alone in a group or, you know, of 20,000 people, because everybody is very intimately tied to their phones with themselves there, you know, taking selfies or what have you. And they're not really even engaged with the concert for, for, for oneself. And so what happens with our treatment of depression is, uh, you know, we, we tell people that they need to really reassess how they're engaging with, with the medium at hand. Are they really curating what they're doing or are they in some ways just engaging in maybe what's herd behavior, um, sometimes unknowingly? You know, um, we're both kind of the masters and the slaves at this point. Um, and so one facet, again, of working on depression is helping people to slow down, and that's hard to do, and to really think about whether they're engaging in things that are meaningful, whether it is spending time with loved ones or in a, in a kind of a pursuit that propels them forward in a way that's transformative. Okay. Yeah. But what about, um, you know, I didn't want to take you down this track too long, but insomnia, you said, is a big focus for you. Yeah. First of all, uh, why? And then what's, uh, you know, we'll talk about how you help them. Yeah. So I, I have idiopathic insomnia myself. Uh, so I've had it since childhood and idiopathic can mean of unknown origin. And I've tried a lot of different treatments. Some of those treatments are not very well grounded in the research uh, literature, though they're often available. And that could just be general counseling, you know, what's stressful, um, you know, how are you coping with stress, um, to relaxation techniques. And then we get into some more alternative, med- you know, uh, treatments like valerian root extract and so forth. And I've also tried prescription medication. Um, CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, has been the one thing that has helped me the most, though I continue to have idiopathic insomnia. And cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, shortened to CBTI, is now accepted as first-line treatment for insomnia. So when I finally came across this, it really changed my life, I would say. I had been struggling with you know, really bad bouts of insomnia for years. The days were very foggy. I felt that there was a glass between me and others. Um, my memory was, was not as good. Uh, certainly felt fatigued during the day and everything was an uphill battle. So when I started doing CBTI, and I could get into what that is, it really was uh, revolutionary for me. And so I got further interested in it, started studying in it, uh, mostly through self-study and going through continuing education and then uh, corresponding a lot and coordinating care a lot with sleep physicians. And now it's, again, very primary, uh, you know, uh, presentation that we treat here. So that's how well, I got did you, to um, it. Sorry, did, did you find that your reasons, you don't have to share them, but your reasons for not sleeping were strange and you know and the many patients you talk to do they have like sensical or strange reasons why they can't sleep if the therapy is what helps like what what, what causes them 
in their mind to not sleep. Yeah, you know, I think um, for both the for the kind of the general practitioner and for the patient, they they tend to look at it from a very superficial angle, if at all. Um, I think sleep is a is an epidemic. I think that that you know, to people who are more well read or who even read you know things like off the you know news shelf at the grocery store, like Time, you know, every year there's a couple. Uh, you know, cover stories on insomnia being an epidemic. I think it certainly is. But when when individuals go see their primary care doctor, sleep isn't really discussed or is it's not really asked about. And the patient, I think, also accepts that it's just a part of modern life. Um, so practitioners who are more astute or patients who are maybe more astute bring it up. And even then, what they're given is typically a handout on sleep hygiene, which is important, but it doesn't get into the nuance of sleep problems. Um, most practitioners, most people think that it's probably some some level of stress. Um, some others think that there must be some psychological underpinning, and by psychological, I mean some intrapsychic issue, you know, some some relational issue, some familial issue, or um, some traumatic issue. Oftentimes. What's really happened is that the the cause of what start the cause of insomnia isn't what's been perpetuating it, and it's much more helpful to look at what's perpetuating it. So patients who develop insomnia for a whole host of reasons typically then engage in behaviors that they feel are helpful for their sleep, but are really counterproductive. For example, they stay, spend more time in bed um, when they can't fall asleep. They stay in bed tossing and turning quote, trying, end quote, to sleep. And and doing so, it's counterproductive because they're both conditioning their bed as a place of uh, sleep, but also a place of being wakeful. And in, in that trying, they're really working, releasing adrenaline, further waking themselves up. And so um, really what we look at is what's perpetuating the insomnia. If we implement techniques that aim, you know, at the at the reinforcement of insomnia, and they don't work over a long period, then there's other things that might be causing it. And sometimes those are unidentified medical issues like a a, a breathing problem that hasn't been uh, uncovered or addressed properly. There could be a pain issue. There could be some hormonal issues. Um, And certainly there could be some trauma issues where there is such a strong association with being in bed or going to sleep with something bad, you know, negative, traumatic having happened in the past. And then we refer to somebody who might be an expert in trauma, or likewise, we refer, you know, back to the sleep physician for a sleep study and so forth. What are, what are some of the origin stories? Like, do people remember how insomnia started for them? Um, yeah, they're not as they're not as uh, elegant as we might imagine. Again, it's much less likely that they're psychological. They usually start uh, with somebody being you know, having a problem at work and and thinking about it at night um, to there being maybe environmental issues, like they uh, had a roommate and the the roommate made a lot of noise or was up in the middle of the night. Um, And then what happens is they try to correct their own insomnia by what I mentioned earlier, and then it perpetuates. It's, It's less often that the story is, is more interesting than that. Certainly, there are stories where people um, used to witness maybe domestic violence at night in their home, or 
you know, the, the house had an intruder uh, at some point. And so something about it being nighttime, something about them going to bed uh, has been, um, is just still really alarming. But again, that's a very small fraction, I would say, of the clients that I've interfaced with, at least. So hope that answers that. So the origin of their insomnia is, again, it's maybe vague. How long have they had it by the time they get to you, typically? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I don't mean to say that it's vague, but it's typically, insomnia tends to be a behavioral issue. It's much less so that they um, are really dealing with kind of a psychodynamic, we'd say, issue, kind of a deeper depth-oriented issue. Um, and then it just takes a life history of its own when they stay in bed too long, they linger in bed, they toss and turn in bed. When people get to me, they uh, typically have had a chronic course where it's been potentially, uh, you know, years, e even going back seven years, 12 years, and whatever they've tried or whatever they've been prescribed or recommended hasn't worked. I think oftentimes, if it does come up in their earlier treatment, um, they're just given medication. And that's not really first-line treatment. Medication should be used when somebody goes down the decision tree and nothing else works for insomnia or for short-term insomnia, such as somebody who's um, maybe at the beginning stages of, of raising a, a newborn or somebody who has jet lag, uh, somebody that's under uh, some grief and bereavement, potentially. Um, but when they get to me, they've just been struggling with this without really ever, ever coming across CBTI. Uh, in fact, I don't think many practitioners know about CBTI, including in my own field. So a lot of clients will mistaken CBTI with CBT. So they'll see a lot of therapists do CBT and the therapist will, in, in, you know, with good intention, you know, employ, you know, relaxation techniques and so forth. But typically those aren't really successful. Um, I'd also do see a few clients who every once in a while who have had very uh, abrupt and recent insomnia and and they might be a little bit more interesting for for you where they tend to be individuals who for lack of a better way of saying it I think they haven't had to go through a lot of resilience building in life and things have kind of just overall the law of averages has worked out pretty well for them and so they have you know, a couple nights of poor sleep, and they're like ending up in the ER, you know, panicking about sleep, they're, they're leaving four or five messages to get in. Those are not usually the patients with chronic insomnia, the patients with chronic insomnia say, Oh, you know, I've had insomnia for such a long time, I could wait another two months before getting in. So the ones that maybe um, are finicky, um, and haven't really dealt with a lot of hardship are, are the ones that it's it, it, they're hard patients um, to navigate with insomnia because they want things to be, they want to see improvement right away. The 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 kind of the, within the first few minutes of right, meeting right. with you, yeah. Do, do so, you, um, do you ever have people that tell you I haven't slept in fifteen years, or and they they believe like they literally haven't slept in years? You ever get anyone like that? Sure, sure. And and what I one when when we're talking about treatment. You know, exper experiential treatment is very helpful. This is somewhere, this is where I go with moderative psychotherapy is that in when they make that statement, 
the therapist must stop and point out that statement and highlight it and ask the question, well, if you haven't slept, if you've never slept, or if you haven't slept for 15 years, how did you get here today? You, you know, you would have been dead by now. And the, the point of something like that, that kind of reflection is to demonstrate to the patient what their more internal belief system is or, and how that's reflected in their inner monologue. It's, it's a usually a very absolutist, dichotomous, black and white uh, kind of system they have at a deeper level. And when that's pointed out to them, they most often pause and, and think about that for a while and say, yeah, you're right. And that's really the beginning of change. When people start to go from an and uh, from an or perspective to an and perspective, because now there's hope. Now not every door is closed. Every once in a while, there's a door that that has opened. And so that's usually my first response when somebody says something like that. Though I understand at a more at a more basic level, at a more uh, empathic level, I understand what they mean is that they've been struggling for for a very long time. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Well, I spoke to one guy that was like, you know, that's physically impossible. They would be dead. So people are actually sleeping, even though they say they're not sleeping at all. Now, he, he didn't have like a, I guess it wasn't as empathetic a take, but, you know, it was just yeah. interesting that, that he said that. I guess that's true. Yeah, you can't go that long without sleeping at all. But I'm sure the quality of the sleep is just awful. And- yeah, yeah. You know, in some ways, I think what's empathic to patients is, you know, there was a psychoanalyst a long time ago. Um, and his name might've been Forense, or I, I got to look it up, but he said, you know, people go around in the world hoping that somebody will be honest with them. And what, you know, I, I don't think patients, you know, this is not to boast, but patients oftentimes have a very good response when they're, they're treated like adults and they're treated as intelligent people. And right. that, that, that generally is a form of therapy that's strength-based where you're, expecting that the patient or the client has gone to this point because of some resolve and some resilience and some skill. And when you talk to them that way, you in some ways are projecting that and they're identifying with that. If, you know, a, a lot of therapists, what they do is that they, they maybe implicitly and unknowingly take a trauma-focused view and assume that the client, you know, when I was in grad school, you know, professors would say, oh, the client isn't ready for the interpretation. Well, the client had been in therapy, you know, these clients they're talking about have been in therapy for seven years. It's like, at what point are you going to tell them kind of how you conceptualize right, yeah. them? You yeah. know, and so uh, it's a kind of a different way of looking at it. But yes, there's something called sleep state misperception, where if somebody goes and has a sleep study, they might experience that, that inpatient stay as just a terrible night where they didn't sleep at all. Right. And when, when the data is um, is reviewed around sensors and maybe videotape and so forth. In fact, the patient has been asleep some of the time. And so they are getting some sleep, though, yes, it is not consolidated sleep. It's not maybe deep sleep, and it certainly isn't quality uh, sleep. And that's reflected in how they feel during the day. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. What, so. what, do, you, um, <clears throat> what do you do that you feel is... Uh... I know is is rare amongst practitioners of, of what you do. Um, maybe some rare, of it is... rare and effective, not just rare, odd. Yeah, I mean, I so one thing that I was that I was mentioning earlier was moderative psychotherapy. So 
earlier, I, when I was in grad school many years ago at this point, I chose to do a theoretical dissertation versus an experimental one, which was kind of, it was different. You know, nobody else that I knew of was doing that. And I, I had this idea about human behavior and some, I was stuck with how I was seeing these, these clients or patients in my internships that knew what the right thing was to do, but over and over and over, they do what wasn't best for them. And so I, I thought to myself, well, there has to be something to this. You know, we, we keep employing these different tools and encouragement and supportive care that there's something that we need to come up with something to help people get over this, you know, what is really self-defeating behavior. And I see self-defeating behavior as really the maybe central issue in psychotherapy or of the human being is how do you, how do you transcend, you know, primitive or animalistic uh patterns and, and do something more more enlightened with metacognition. And so I, I came up with this theory of the evolving psyche and the name later on turn, turned into moderative psychotherapy. And what I proposed with moderative psychotherapy is that there's four spheres that make up the human psyche or human behavior. And the first, uh, previous to this, there's been a lot of dual processing theories out there. Like, one would be the unconscious conscious, like how Freud has proposed it, or some people talk about IQ versus EQ, emotional intelligence. And there's other ones, certainly. But um, coming from a biological background, I have come up with four spheres. The first sphere is a nature sphere, which one could think about the biological role of behavior, inborn temperament, behavioral genetics, and so forth, which are often overlooked by psychologists, actually. The second one is the environmental sphere. And it isn't just nurturing. It could be about the physical environment or the sociopolitical or cultural environment that one is growing up in that shapes one's behaviors. And then there's the third sphere, which has to do with the non-conscious. And I differentiate that as do other clinicians from unconscious because there's a lot of other subconscious processes going on. And then there's sphere four, which is conscious uh, the conscious sphere that has to do with what we know better. And that's really what cognitive behavioral therapy is aimed at, you know, giving people uh, ways to think differently. But again, oftentimes that doesn't work. So what I think is unique about me is that I think of people using these four spheres. So I'm, I'm stereotyping, but if a psychodynamic therapist or a psychoanalytic therapist, and they're more of the, it's not really accurate, but the Freudian or Jungian tradition see a client who doesn't have a lot of affect, doesn't really go there, doesn't get vulnerable, doesn't display a lot of emotion, they'll very quickly say that the client is resistant or the client is in denial or is deflecting. But if you think of sphere one, which is a nature sphere, a lot of those clients might be on the autism spectrum. You know, a lot of engineers come in that way. So that's what makes it unique is that I look at all those aspects um, and another thing that's interesting is what's going on in the environment. You know, like we talked about sociogeny before, or when we talk about accelerating, you know, environmental change. If things are changing so quickly, you know, you, you're, so I wrote this novel, Avoid. It's kind of a hybrid fiction, nonfiction book. And it's right. about this character named Billy, who uh, is in, interestingly, it's, it's about when there's a, a pathogen and he's, he's a psychologist, but because a lot of people have died, he's reduced to working as a, as a, in the path lab of a hospital. And 
he's working so tirelessly, you know, he falls asleep. After he falls asleep and he wakes up, the earth is, you know, or the everywhere around him is stripped of human beings. And the story is about him going and finding out what happened while he slept. Well, the story is really about time. It's really about accelerating exponential change. If things go so fast, at some point, we individually and as a, as a civilization lose control. And so I'll talk about that with, with clients, as I've mentioned before, about really what are they prioritizing? What are the, the boundaries they're setting in their life so that they're not, um, they're not inattentive, they're not losing control. Um, and well, then, what, what's their reaction to these stories? I mean, it, I don't know, they, they seem a little bit nebulous, but uh, again, what's, what's people's reaction? They really, well, I, you know, partly because of time here, you know, there's only so many things we can obviously get into, but the, but the examples are everywhere. I mean, when. Well, what's one that really, really jumps yeah. out at you that just hits you? Uh, well, they, they say they have time for nothing. They don't have time yeah. for anything. And some of that is exemplified by, you know, this is what got me interested in both accelerating change and moderate psychotherapy as well is, you know, over time, if I were to have done a study about whether patients over the course of thousands of patients, you know, going over a dozen years, get to therapy later and later, forget more and more of, of their appointments, I would say, yes, that's true. And there'd be a significant increase despite all the courtesy reminders we send and all the, you know, scheduling uh, apps that they have on their phone. People over time are getting to my practice later and later. You know, they're, for, they're forgetful a lot more. They need a lot more handholding, you know, uh, about completing the forms before coming in. Um, you know, it's odd. Like we just recently had my wife set a set a play date um, with uh, another parent and confirmed. And then the other parent, you know, texts back, please remind me as it's coming up, you know, <laughs> this is a mother, you know, but these aren't yeah. odd stories. These aren't odd stories for me at this point. I When... I, I realized a, a while ago when I would read the news online at reputable sites, you know, whether it's the New York Times, LA Times, whatever it is, there'd be a lot more, there's a lot more journalistic error. I mean, one thing I recommend your listeners do, or even if you might want to do is, you know, randomly, you know, go in today and read some articles and see if you could find some grammatical mistakes or spelling mistakes. And then even in the title on the front page, and then do that next week, the week after, the week after, and you'll see maybe an exponential increase in, in all these errors where I don't really remember this happening at that, at that echelon when I was younger. Well, what you about know? the facts of the stories? What do you, maybe, do, maybe do you go that far. Maybe. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I probably, I'm so busy. I probably just noticed the grammar at that point and the spelling, but well, what but, does that tell you then when you see that? There you go. I mean, I mean, it tells me that life is going so fast that things are falling through the cracks. I don't think it's such an error that there's missile test errors or, you know, there's blunders with the Oscar envelopes. You know, I don't think these things are necessarily there. They are errors, but I think that they're increasing over time. And this isn't to take an anti-technology approach. I think what we need to do, you know, right now there's kind of a code of conduct implicitly, you know, when one is at a, uh, I don't know, at the movies, not to turn on their phone or, you know, have it, on loud or be looking at it on, in bright light or something. I think we need to decide how we go about implementing this rapid change in other parts of our lives. And I think it's an uphill battle. But I think, you know, if society were to kind of have some more norms around this kind of thing, 
you know, a lot of like musical artists recently, maybe it's a hot thing to do. They're asking clients not to bring phones to the concerts. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's in that same kind of vein. Um, uh, get, getting back to this, what makes it, what maybe I do uniquely. Um, typically, I feel that people are self-defeating not because they desire a bad outcome. They're really making a trade-off between something that's gratifying short-term versus long-term. And I think if they have a, we all do that, but if they have a pattern of doing this, it typically is because when they're younger, they were either either raised in a family that was extremely rigid or in a family that was extremely chaotic. But again, there's polarities there. And so either it was too conditional or too unconditional in the conditional, uh, you know, uh, upbringing everything is is one way or another it's good or bad and in the unconditional or chaotic upbringing the child has to split the world to make sense uh, to make kind of a roadmap for themselves because they're left to their own devices now when that's overdeveloped people return to that dynamic over and over so whereas they might see um hey if i, I you know i keep saying i want to um uh, i don't know we can pick any behavior let's say I want to lose weight, but I keep returning to, to binge eating at a much deeper level, what their belief system is. If I, I'm only, for example, safe or unsafe or vulnerable or invulnerable if I do one or the other. So they keep returning to the dynamic versus the, the long-term change sustained maybe weight loss would be for them to think I'm good enough and I'm not good enough. Even though I didn't do the best today with my eating, I can still stay on track. Those two things could exist versus somebody who flips back to binging. It's like, I'm going to start next week. And so one thing I do in session is when I see clients behaving in that way, you know, like I have a client coming in and saying, I can't make one good decision. And then I look at his clothing and he's very fashionable. And I'll say something like who, who decided on, you know, you're, how you're dressed today. And, and he'll, he stopped and he's like, I see where you're going with this. And so moderate psychotherapy is about helping people in the moment experience a duality. And but if a patient have, comes, go ahead. I, I don't know what, what is, um, I don't know. What if you have someone that has like a, I don't know, a horrible opinion of themselves, like kind of like the example you gave. Yeah. How do you overcome that without like, I don't know, like, how do you break through that? Well, that's, it, 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 it's, it's in the work, it's in the practice, and it certainly isn't instantaneous. It, right, it, I don't it, think it would be. But yeah. yeah, yeah, so it, it's by doing that same thing of, and maybe even reflecting back. I mean, you want to present the client with as much moderative experience as possible. And what I mean by this is a lot of therapists will talk too much in session or they'll talk too little. And clients mm. come in and say, I just went in there and the patient just nodded. You know, I'm sorry, the practitioner, the, the therapist just nodded. You know, I went there for years, nothing right. changed. Um, or, or the therapist only looks at it from a cognitive behavioral angle or only looks at it from a psychodynamic angle. So modern psychotherapy, my, my goal is and my, my faith is in the, in, the, in the idea that the more moderative experience you give the client, the more they become integrated, the more they can live in a world of and. And so, for example, I might sometimes talk more than other therapists and sometimes I might be more reserved. I might share a little bit about my life as, as examples for the client. And sometimes I might not share much. I might pay attention to their lexicon, how they're talking. I might also though talk about how it is, what it feels like to be with them in the room. So however many dualities you can have them 
kind of entertain or experience that helps them internally become more integrated as people where they can kind of move toward the longer term uh, kind of goals that they have versus regressing back. Does that make sense? Is is that like a positive, gentle, cognitive dissonance in a way? um, I'd have to think about that. I'd have to think about that, but you know, I, I, I got, I have to think about the technicalities of that. That that's not a bad point you're bringing up. I just have, I need more time to think about that. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. It's just a name that came to mind. Maybe that's. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. So, so splitting is, is a, is what happens when somebody has a very rigid upbringing or a very chaotic upbringing and everybody goes through splitting. Everybody you know, makes some sense of the world uh, as a, uh, and has a schema about how the world operates. But, when it's overdeveloped and people don't see context is when we get into trouble and we get into chronic self-defeat. Um, and again, looking at it from maybe four different spheres and act, behaving um, differently in counseling rather than having kind of one mode, you know, cookie cutter, one orientation mode helps to integrate the, the human being and for them to move forward. And, I, and I've okay. certainly seen that with a lot of my gotcha. patients who I would say, uh, again, it's not to boast, but I have to have faith in what I'm doing. I think that they've really improved, whereas before they've been stuck. And certainly there's some that are really tough cases. And I, you know, I, I try my hardest and whether they try their hardest or not, we don't see improvement. And there could be other variables at play. Like it could be that they've been a uh, substance abuse addict for such a long time that there's just some neurochemistry that has changed. You know, it yeah. makes it very hard for them to delay gratification or do what's best for them. Yeah. What do you see as the uh, the future of your work? Are there any breakthroughs yourself that you feel like you're you're making progress on, getting through to a certain patient population that was harder or you couldn't do it before? You know, on a more kind of you know, I'm I continue to be on the path I'm on, and I'm on this path. You know, the things that I've spoken about today, because I'm still very excited about them. And I, I, I see even a larger role for them in the future. You know, accelerating um, environmental change is something that barely anybody talks about. You know, people talk about how uh, life, life is stressful, people don't sleep well, um, people feel lonely, but nobody talks about maybe the underlying mechanisms of what's happening at a, at a more population-based level. So I'm still very interested in sharing that information. Uh, same thing with moderate psychotherapy. Um, when I wrote this theory, uh, I've still until this day been working on making it an article. And part of that has been because I've had other commitments. Uh, I moved from Los Angeles to Portland. I had to relicense uh, in Oregon. And then I wrote a couple books. Um, um, I did some other things. And in some ways, that's serendipitous because my ideas about the theory have changed and solidified over time. So, and then insomnia, it's a very fulfilling uh, line of work because so many people are underdiagnosed or undertreated. And you really do see with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which I did not come up with. um, It is a very powerful treatment that uh, really transforms their lives. Uh, So it's very, very fulfilling to do that kind of work. Um, And one thing I was going to mention is a lot of times people do come in for depression, come in for anxiety, and not just to to us or to other therapists or to primary care doctors. Um, But 
it's it's not uh, realized that their depression and anxiety could very well be secondary, if not exacerbated by poor sleep. Because when people don't sleep well for a long period of time, it's very possible that they're going to get depression and anxiety. And so they go to see a therapist, go see the doctor, and the depression and anxiety is treated, but not the underlying insomnia. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. Because yeah, where is on you? Like, you know, maybe I'm a snowflake sleeper, but if I don't sleep well, even for like a night or two, it's like, it's bad, you know, so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, what you mean. yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's certainly it, it's certainly and, and to your point it, it is a very important aspect of health i mean if you think about it all organisms sleep you know they even i think even uh, i forget what um microbe it is i don't know if it's protozoa or prions or what but even they under laboratory in the laboratory you know obviously experts are doing this you know they they sleep they go into some period of, uh, of, of whether it's lack of movement or, or shutdown or something like that. And so it's a very old mechanism. And, and we spend, I mean, you know, let's just throw out seven, eight, nine hours a day sleeping. So we can't ignore that that is not a critical part of one's health. And certainly researchers who are doing a lot of good hard work on this. I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm not a researcher. You know, they're, they're realizing that the impact of poor sleep is, is prevalent amongst the whole other, you know, host of health conditions. I gotcha. Well, very good. We're, um, we're coming to the end of the time. What's the best way for people to reach you and reach out? Uh, well, I appreciate the opportunity, Richard. It's been very nice talking with you. Um, if people do want to reach out, if they want to look at more of my creative work, um, my novel Avoid or other things that I've done, they would go to www.bobakgovan.com. And um, that's a kind of a difficult name, but it's B-A-B-A-K-G-O-V-A-N at, uh, I'm sorry, dot com. Or if they want to look at more of my professional work, my private practice, and learn more about moderative psychotherapy, then they would look at www.integrative, so that's I-V-E-N-W, which stands for northwest.com. And I'd be happy you know, to answer any questions or if anybody wants to um, you know, uh, get some more information, I'd be happy to send that out to them. Yeah, and I don't know if you do telemedicine, but if not, uh, what is local to you? What areas do you cover where people can come to see you? Yeah, so I, I'm licensed in California, um, though I'm not active there. So th- I would really be available currently to the to you know people in Oregon. Um, uh, the state laws continue to be somewhat restrictive uh, about interstate practice. That's not just about me or Oregon. That's across the board and. There's some, there's some, you know, initiative. There are some initiatives out there to uh, get more, get people more access across state boundaries. But for, at this point, it would be Oregon, though. Um, my telehealth practice is somewhat limited, not because of my own desires. Somehow, there, there seems to be maybe some barriers. It hasn't picked up traction, I think, overall, and yet, even though it's a good idea. Um, but so mostly I'm treating people in the metropolitan Portland, Oregon area at this point. Okay. Well, very good. Well, bye-bye. Yeah. thanks for coming on the uh, podcast. We talked about some interesting and novel topics. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure uh, getting to uh, meet you on the, on you know, the podcast and, and, and uh, best wishes for you and everyone.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.